that's encouraging and fuzzy, right? Um, but as we turn there, turn to Revelation chapter 6 this morning, I would like to go through a couple of announcements, if I could get those slides. Um, and really, I think it's just one of them. Uh, well, here's one. If you're a child or you are on Instagram and you want to be encouraged by what's going on with our youth, we currently have an Instagram page where there's posts and there's uh, devotional thoughts to be thinking about. And so um, I'd encourage you to check that out. And then also, our summer youth camp at Eagle Sky. Um, several have asked, what are we going to do about youth camp? Is that canceled? What's going on? And I would submit to you that at this point, uh, though we have a lot of unknowns, we're planning as if we're going forwards. And that's from uh, the bridge that is putting on the camp. Uh, they're still planning and moving forward. They've removed our minimums for the amount of kids that we can, you know, take at a lower level because of, uh, you know, the cost changes based on quantity. So they said there's no minimums. So whoever wants to go, go ahead and start planning to go for those dates. Um, but also, um, uh, you know, we're, we're planning on going. So I, I'm hoping that things will be back to whatever our new normal is by then. But uh, perhaps because a lot of vacation plans have been shut down, maybe we'll be able to take more youth than we typically would. And so that's my prayer. Um, another thing uh, is, you know, with, with everything going on right now, this isn't set in stone yet, but I still have it on my heart to, um, to have a, uh, a baccalaureate of sorts, if that's something that you're familiar with from your past. Um, it's not something that's, that goes on as much anymore, but it's a way to honor uh, the senior class, which we've been doing a lot of that lately in different ways, and we're getting creative with that. But we'd like to uh, consider having a meal where we would invite seniors and their parents and celebrate uh, just this transition from, from home life to possibly going off to college or a career or whatever have they have going on. And we want to encourage them. We want to bless them. And we want to send them out uh, with the tools that they need. And so um, this is a way for us to reach out into our community and tell these these youth that are going out into the world that uh, without Christ, their their life is going to be shakable, and we want to give them hope and uh, something they can lean upon in the years to follow. And so um, be praying with me, because I think uh, that this is going to be the perfect year to have our first one, but I also believe that it might be hard to find an, a big enough venue, as well as uh, set down times, dates, and figure out what we're going to do to serve them a meal. And so just be praying, and if you're interested in being involved, please contact me and let me know. I think that this is going to be a wonderful opportunity. So with that being said, let's turn to Revelation chapter 6 this morning. Revelation 6. And I want to remind you where we're at in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 19, I've said this over and over, but the best way to teach is to repeat things to the point where your students almost become annoyed, but when they become annoyed with repetition, they always remember what you teach them. And so write the things, he says, which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so this is what I believe to be the divine outline that God's given us for the book of Revelation. Uh, John the Apostle has been put in uh, Patmos, the island of Patmos, on exile for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And while he is there in the silence and in the work camp, God reveals himself through Jesus uh, with this vision of the things which he has seen, reminding him of all that God has done in the past and all that he's been a partaker of, but also then uh, the things which are. And he gives a letter of encouragement and rebuke in some cases, to seven churches that existed in those days. And the things which will take place in the Greek, metatauta, after this or after these things. And so this is a future vision. It's a prophetic vision. God's unveiling Jesus Christ, and he's unveiling what will take place after what we know. For John, it was for what, after what he knew, and for us, it's after what we know, because we know that many of these things have not taken place yet, otherwise we would remember them. And so in chapter 4 and 5, we've already experienced 
what he, we, I called the three weeks of lingering in the throne room, where we got to spend time focusing outside of our perspective, uh, which is earthly and temporary. We got to focus off of the things of the earth, and John gets pulled up, or raptured, if you will, caught up into this heavenly vision where there's a throne room and there's all these things going on in the throne room of God. God himself is there. And then on the last week of the study in chapter 5, we saw Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who has triumphed. And yet what we see is that when he turns to see what he believes is going to be a lion, he sees a lamb as though it had already been slain for the sins of the world. And so the whole chapter ends up with this worship chorus that I believe goes on for all eternity that we get to join in with where they're singing, Jesus, you are worthy. You're the only one who can loose the seals and redeem the earth. And then you are worthy because you were slain. You're worthy because you redeemed us by your own precious, spotless, blemishless blood. And the church is the only group who can sing this Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has redeemed us out of all these nations, tribes, tongues, and languages. He says, you have made us a nation of kings and priests to our God. One nation literally under God. One nation under his throne. One nation, one king. And so we look forward to this time, and yet chapter 4 through 5 gives us kind of a a glimpse before we get to glory. The church, I believe, is taken up into heaven and sings along with this sweet song of the redeemed. And God, before the great tribulation period of seven years, takes up his people because we're not appointed to wrath. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, there's much conjecture and argument even within the Christian realm of what this means, but we believe, at least I believe as a Bible teacher, that the Bible teaches that before the great tribulation period, God has planned to take his people up so that when he returns, notice that it says in scripture, he will return with us, ten thousands of his saints, legions of us to come down and conquer, rule and reign the earth. And so if we're going to come back with him. We also need to be taken up to be with him before that. And so in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We'll be saved from the wrath to come. We'll be taken up away from the wrath. But if you turn also to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 9, no less, it also says this. Now, Paul is this writer again, and it says there in verse 9 in chapter 5, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And then he says to the Thessalonians, therefore comfort each other and strengthen one another, just as you also are doing implied is until that time. And so chapter 4 and 5 is for us. The church is taken up into heaven. We're with God. And yet chapter 6 through 19 is this long, laid out, prolonged understanding of what's going to happen on the earth while we have been taken away. God's taking his people out. And what you'll notice is that because the restraint of the Holy Spirit present within us is no longer here, we're not exercising our influence on the earth, all of a sudden, hell is unleashed. You want to experience hell on earth? Don't bow down to the sun and wait and see how it all plays out. So the great tribulation period starts in chapter 6 and goes through chapter 19 of Revelation, where God releases his wrath upon a God-rejecting earth. Now, I believe he does this for several reasons. Um, but number one, he does it to shake up non-believers. Now, my PowerPoint's messed up there, but first bullet point, he allows hell to be unleashed on the earth, not 
so that everyone will perish, but in order to shake up non-believers in hopes that in all the stuff they've trusted in being taken away or shaken or moved would actually cause them to cry out to him and repent and receive. But he also allows this hell to be unleashed on earth in order to wake up the nation of Israel who rejected him at his first coming. And then also to make up the kingdom. God's going to break things in order to remake things. He's going to re He's going to break what we know as earth and life as we know it so that he can remake it and make it what it was supposed to be from the beginning. And so as we begin our reading in chapter 6 of Revelation, we see the seals are going to be opened on the scroll. You'll remember that we spent lots of time talking about the, the right of redemption, how Jesus is the only one that's worthy and able to open the seals of the scroll. And you would think if he's going to unleash and open the title deed, that he would actually open up something that we would want to see. And yet when he opens up these seals, he removes the wax so that this, this scroll can be opened. He opens up seven seals that unleash this terror. It says, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Now these creatures are one of the four living creatures, these beasts that have the four different images that represent Christ, but they're the cherubim. And it says, come and see. And verse two says, I looked and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now think about the old spaghetti westerns. How could you tell who was the good guy and who was the bad guy? The clothes that they wore, of course, there was the, the music in the background. That really changes the way the scene goes, right? If there's this dun-dun-dun, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. But if there's this, you know, you know, this triumphal music and a white horse comes in, that's the good guy. I mean, it's obvious. It's not even subtle. It's almost cheesy. So if you would expect Jesus to come back, he would come riding a white horse, right? Well, yes, but I do not believe that this is the white horse that Jesus will ride upon. Why? Well, it says here in verse 1 and 2, he's on a white horse. He is a rider with a bow, but it never says that he has arrows. He's got a bow, which is a war instrument, but he has no power to do anything with it. The arrows don't hit anything. Now, this may seem obscure, so bear with me for a moment. But if you turn with me to Genesis in chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 10, there's this genealogy going on. And I know you guys, you pour over those genealogies and you love them. And you're like, man, this is the most inspirational thing in Scripture. But in Genesis chapter 10, in verse 8, after the flood, Noah and his descendants, in chapter 10, verse 8, it says, A man by the name of Cush begot a son, Nimrod. And it says, Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. You think of Babel, think of Babylon. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So what you know about the, the kingdom of Babylon is that there was this, this big tower built after the flood in order to avoid being destroyed from the earth again. But what we also know is that God said he would never flood the earth again. But one of the leaders of this kingdom is a, name by, a man by the name of Nimrod. And it says there about him, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And you think, what's the big deal? He, he's a hunter. He's a man's man. But the word before does not mean in front of. It means instead of. He's a mighty man, a mighty leader, a mighty food provider, instead of God. So he's a picture of rebellion against God. And if you study Nimrod and his descendants, we're not going to go into today, 
what it says about Nimrod is that his mom actually conceived him uh, supernaturally. A virgin birth. Imagine that. So it's this perversion of what God planned to do through Mary and Jesus. And so all that to say he is a type of the Antichrist. We think of Antichrist, we think of somebody that's against Christ, and he is, but the word anti means before the Lord, the same way as Nimrod, which means instead of the Messiah, instead of Christ. And so with all that, you can dig into it later, but the idea is he is a writer with a bow that is exact type of this Nimrod character, which is a type of the Antichrist. So I believe that this man is the Antichrist. Uh, Anything in life that looks too good to be true typically is too good to be true. For instance, he's also wearing a crown. Now, the, the Greek word for crown, a jeweled crown for royalty, is diadem. But the word used here in Revelation is actually Stephanos. I probably messed it up. Uh, but Stephanos or Stephanus actually means a laurel crown of like olive branches, a temporary rotting crown, one that won't last forever. And yet here, this man has the temporary crown that will eventually fade and go away. So he's a temporary king. But what does he do? He goes out conquering and to conquer. He goes out fighting battles to win the battle and also in order to win the war. Wars are made up of lots of small victories that lead to the ultimate victory. But if you want to read a little bit about this man, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Because in Daniel, as we studied, I think last December, not 2019, but 2018, it's been a while, in Daniel, we get this prophecy of what's going to happen after these things. And in Daniel chapter 8, he's continued through the progression of these different uh, kingdoms. Uh, Greece is mentioned, Rome is mentioned, the Persian kings, all the way back to Babel with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But as you follow through, there's this interesting thing that takes place in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, where it says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. He's slick. He's really good. He's a politician. He's well-known, and people love him, and he's really smooth with his tongue. Verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? Jesus. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. And then this vision is given to Daniel. And they say, therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So this vision is sealed up. And yet here in Revelation 6 today, who's opening the vision? Jesus. Who's opening the seal? Jesus. And so we see this white horse rider is the Antichrist. And I know this not only because of what we talked about with the crown and the bow and Daniel chapter 8, but also the white horse rider, after he comes, what will follow is war and famine and pestilence and people will be martyred and disaster and trembling around the world. In contrast that to Revelation chapter 19, where when Jesus comes, what follows Jesus? Peace and plenty and righteous leadership and judgments that are righteous. And so what we know about this man is that the fruit 
proves the root. What follows him, the fruit of his leadership, will lead to not peace, but instead war. Now, from what I believe about the end times is that this man will come on the scene at the beginning of the seven-year great tribulation. We'll get into that in in future chapters. But he's going to be liked. The nation of Israel will look at this man. Look at the picture I have there for you. Now, this is not from my picture Bible. I don't have a picture Bible. But this is an artist rendering of this horseman. I don't know about you guys, but when Jesus came upon the scene, the nation of Israel was looking for a man that looked just like this. A man that was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. A man that was strong and able to lead the people. A man like King David. And yet when the Messiah, the descendant of David, comes on the the scene, he, he comes meek and humble and riding on a colt full of a donkey. He's not coming in to set up his kingdom and shut down the Romans. He's coming in humbly under a banner of peace to deal with what? Sin. All that to say is that the nation of Israel is still looking for this guy. They're still looking for this deliverer to come in on a a horse, a white horse, and have all the right things and have a, a plan for peace and be able to fix the Middle East conflict. And they are ripe for this because as soon as he steps foot on the scene, they will be duped and and they'll give him authority. Many believe they'll actually allow him to rebuild the temple on the same mountain as what's right there now, the, the, the Dome of the Rock. But all that's going to take place. And then three and a half years into the Great Tribulation, he's going to be standing in this new temple that they've been looking forward to And he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And he's going to say, bow down and worship me. And he's going to do all kinds of things that are against their religion. And their eyes will be open. And they'll see him for what he is. And then they will panic and run. So all that to say, white horsemen aren't always what they seem to be. So, verse 3. So he who sat there, excuse me, that's chapter 4, verse 3. When Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that people should kill one another, and there was given him a great sword. Now, this second horseman comes on the scene and he is given, he, he's on a fiery red horse. He's given a great sword for destruction and death. He's given authority to take peace from the earth that people everywhere should kill each other. This horseman brings war to the earth. And if you know anything about uh, our desire for peace, Our desire for peace is because we worship peace. Our desire for peace is that we could live a peaceable life. But the whole world is trying to get peace without Jesus, and that's not going to lead to peace. It's going to lead to what we've been reading in the book of Judges recently, which is every man does what is right in his own eyes, and there's no king in the world who brings us all together. So this judgment on the world brings war. And with war comes lots of death. There comes unrest. And what war usually leads to is famine. So in verse uh, 5, he continues on by saying, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, there was a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so the second rider, the second horse, comes in and brings war on the earth. And and when, when this happens, not only is there death and there unrest among the nations, but there's also famine. Now, Many of us 
And many people don't get involved politically until there's some sort of unrest in their lives with war and then there's famine. We trust in having food on our tables that it's just a known. But nations all over the world have been without food for a long time or a scarcity of it. But in this time, it will not only be a war going on, it will be world war all around the globe. And it will not only be famine, it will be world famine. And I've been putting on each one of these slides a reference to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus tells his disciples what it will look like at the end of the age. And he mentions these things. He mentions wars and rumors of wars. He mentions earthquakes and famines and and all these problems. But in this particular one, the black horse, is he unleashes a famine and it's a rider with a pair of scales in your hand, in his hand. And they would essentially equate how much a quart of wheat costs. A quart of wheat would be enough to make a loaf of bread, and it is a wage of a day to pay for a loaf of bread. Now you think about where we're at right now. We have this pestilence. We have this virus going around that everyone is tired of talking about, I guarantee it. Maybe some of you aren't, but I am. But we're, we're tired of the effects. We're tired of hearing about it. But what's happened is that many industries have shut down, so there's a scarcity of certain products. Now, whether it's manufactured scarcity or whether it's legit, we don't know. But all we know is when we go to the store, certain things, staples, are not there, whether it's because people hoarding or whether it's because there's literally a scarcity of it. But nonetheless... In this time, a quart of wheat will cost a day's wage. A day's wage. And at the same time, three quarts of barley would cost a day wage. So barley is what they would use to feed their animals. So it's kind of what we would call junk food. We'll feed that to the animals. But the idea is that it will be very expensive to get the most simple food, bread. Bread is kind of a a basket that keeps us alive. It's something that, you know, when you run out, you just go get more and it's just there on the shelf. But what's interesting is in the last days, it's not those who have the most gold that will rule. It's not, that's not the capital you want to trade in. It will actually be wheat and barley. And so an interesting thing that's said after that is don't harm the oil or the wine. Don't waste it because it will be scarce. But I also believe that this means that those who are upper echelon type people won't necessarily be affected by the famine, as we're seeing today. Whether you believe it or not, there are certain celebrities saying you don't need to go out, and they're still doing all the same things. Then they open up their freezer and show you all the stuff they stockpiled. People are losing their jobs, and yet there's people showing you how much of certain kinds of ice cream they've put in their freezer. And so... But he says, don't harm or waste the oil or the wine. So there's still people that are accruing wine, which is something that is not necessarily necessity, and also oil, olive oil. It's a fine product. And so war and famine and the Antichrist, and then uh, fasten your seatbelts, death. So before you uh, get nightmares from looking at this little image, I almost didn't use. I, I googled and found these pictures of these horsemen, and I almost didn't use this one because this one looks very scary. I mean, the horse doesn't have any uh, color or pigment to his skin. His eyes are bleeding. There's blood on his hooves. There's this creepy guy riding on the back of him with a sickle and horns, and there's blood dripping from every place on this guy. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a little bit too harsh for what the scripture is teaching. And then I got to thinking about it. I was like, no, because let's read it. Verse 7. When Jesus opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. 
Now you can say what you want, and this is going to be somewhat controversial, but you can say what you want about our current pestilence, coronavirus, COVID-19, the death of all deaths to some and to some a joke. But you can say what you want. If, when we look at the percentages, when it's all said and done, even if it's, for, for some they're saying it's way less than the common flu, and for some they're saying it's more than you think it's going to be, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you fall on, it's not 25% of the earth's population. You think of the panic that we are in right now, uh, some of you are over it, some of you are still panicking, but think about it, if one to 10% at the highest estimation, whatever you think, it's not 25. 25% of seven whatever billion is billions of people, no matter what way you look at it. Now, uh, I want you to notice that this horse uh, kind of exemplifies what is going to come upon the earth. He says a pale horse. This isn't pale rider. This is a the word for pale means green, like when you're sick. Uh, some in the Hebrew translation actually translate this uh, leprosy. So this is a horse struck with leprosy that's running throughout the earth and plaguing it. You think that social distance from a person that might have COVID-19 is important to you. Wait till there's a horse and a rider that have leprosy and are running throughout the earth spreading it like wildfire. It will be unparalleled. So the rider's name is Death, and it seems that he either has a companion or someone like him riding on another horse named Hell or Hades. Now, Death, that word deals with the physical ailment of no longer existing. But then Hell deals with the spiritual, Hades. So Death and Hades, it won't just necessarily affect the physical life, it also affects the spiritual life. But both of these are given authority to kill 25% of the earth's population with war, which is already existing, famine, which will be widespread throughout the earth, pestilence, which can be microbial, or it can also be something as simple as leprosy, it will spread, and then wild animals. But as I was listening to this be taught by John Corson this week, he brought out that the word there for beasts actually implies immeasurable beasts. I thought it was talking about like wild animals kind of turning on us. If you've ever seen Zootopia, you're watching Zootopia, some of you have. Um, in there, all of a sudden, the, you know, they've of course evolved and they're all getting along, but some of them are going wild or what was the word they used? Um, uh, doesn't matter. They were going essentially savage that the wild animals the wild beasts were going savage and so as they're going savage um, these aren't beasts these aren't lions these aren't anything what they are is it implies that they are actually immeasurable beasts and i lost my place where was it fifth seal nope fourth seal uh, a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword hunger death and by the beasts of the earth. Now the beasts here can mean immeasurable beasts. So it either means very large animals, uh, but we can measure those, right? And, and really anymore, we can measure most beasts, whether they're large or small. But he implied, and he taught this, keep this in mind, 12 years ago, he said it can actually mean microbes. Microbes unleashed on the earth by this horse and rider that can kill 25% of the earth's population. Now, I don't know about you, but that means something entirely different to me as I read through it this year than it did last year. And so God is unleashing judgment. And I want to remind you, he's not, leash, he's not unleashing judgment so that the, world, the people in the world would perish. He's not willing that any should perish, but he's willing that whosoever will may come to him and instead receive everlasting life instead of perishing. And even in the great tribulation period, I would submit to you, there's an opportunity to receive this gift. And so in verse 9, he continues on, he opens the fifth seal, 
And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Stop there. Think about this. Jesus has just been slain. Go back with me to early A.D. Jesus is on the earth. He's being put on the cross. And what does he cry out about his enemies? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Now, fast forward to the first martyr in the book of Acts. Stephen is being stoned. And as he's being stoned, he cries out to his captors, to his murderers. They are his enemies. And he cries out, Lord, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And that is supposed to be Jesus commands us to what? Love our enemies. By the way, still in place right now. But in this dispensation, in the great tribulation, during the seven-year time, the martyrs, those who have been slain for their faith and their testimony of Jesus, they are at the base. They're under the altar. By the way, the altar is inside the Holy of Holies when described in the, in the, the temple. You can't get any closer to God than being at the altar itself. That's where he does business. That's where he communes with the high priest. And yet we've been brought in because of our high priest. And in Exodus chapter 29, in order to set the altar apart for use for, for uh, sacrifices, they would actually take the blood of a bull and they would put it on the horns of the altar. I have a picture there for you. And whatever's left from the blood that was spilled from that heifer or that innocent animal, they would dump it on the side of the altar. Pretty messy. But the blood that was left that was poured at the base of the altar is a type of these martyrs. These martyrs have been an offering given up before the Lord. And for all eternity, it seems, they are the closest to Jesus in the temple. They are there. They're, they're experiencing closeness with God. But notice what they're doing from under the altar. They're crying out, how long before you judge? How long before you take vengeance on those who have slain us? They're no longer crying out, forgive them. Now they're crying out, when are you going to make this right, Lord? When are you going to avenge our blood? Which made me think of Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The first God follower, Abel, was murdered by his brother. And right after that, it says something very interesting. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, it says, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance. Not vengeance, but repaying the guilty for judgment. And so it was unfair. And so his blood cried out, which makes me think that his blood is among the martyrs at the base of the altar, crying out, when are you going to make things right? And yet what we find out from this passage in this fifth seal is after they say, how are you going to make this right? When are you going to avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11 says, then a white robe was given to each of them. They're robed in righteousness. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer for a time, just rest here, Stay in my presence until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So while these pestilences and these plagues and war and famine, all this is taking place on the earth, there are people that were not believers because they weren't raptured who have seen the world be shaken as it is and they decide to receive Jesus and follow him and to keep their confession. I trust wholly in Jesus. And yet, if you're waiting to the tribulation period to make your profession of faith, you will die for that in the tribulation. It's not if, you will. You will be a living and dying testimony before the unbelieving world that you'd really trust in Jesus. It will cost you your life. And so he says to them, while all this is going on, there will be another seal unleashed. And that means that the martyrs will continue to pour into the base of the altar until God stops it. There will be converts to Christ during the great tribulation, but they will die for their faith in Jesus. But they're told to wait and to rest 
until all their fellow martyrs join them, their brothers in Christ. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but those in the tribulation who refuse to take the mark of the beast will be martyred. Now, if you don't think that that's ever going to be a thing, we live in a day and age where all of a sudden it's becoming so real. And it has in generations past, but right now Bill Gates has done this research and the ADA has uh, actually uh, said, okay, you can do this. They've approved it. This little chip that they can inject into you where they can track your location and they're pushing to actually track your location to see who you've been in contact with so that if you've not had a vaccine, uh, you'll be registered and you will get in trouble and they'll be able to tell who you might have infected. And many believe that it's, only, it's also going to lead to the time where um, this little thing is how you will buy, sell, and trade. Think about how people do Apple Pay and stuff with their phones. It will then be injected into your hand or whatever. So uh, many believe that this is leading to the mark of the beast. I don't know. I'm not going to say that it will for sure. But that being said, in the tribulation, those who refuse to take that mark will be martyred for it. They'll kill you. This is all wonderful news, right? Uh, Sunday morning, nice sunshine outside. You're like, I would have rather stayed in bed. But remember, this is what's going on on the earth Unbeliever, believers will not be a part of this kind of terror. We're not appointed to wrath. But then in verse 12, he goes on to say, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and of the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, now let's stop there. So everything's being shaken that we know. Peace being taken. Food not guaranteed. Uh, terror on the earth, famines and plagues. And then the earth itself starts to shake and quake. The sun, that's a consistent. It means a new day. All of a sudden, black. The moon turns to red. The stars start falling from the sky. The sky rolls up like a scroll. It means to split. Uh, the mountains and the islands are moved. Think about what we know about earthquakes and the, the plates of the earth. When I was going to school, it was called plate tectonics. And all of a sudden, these plates would rub together and cause these local earthquakes and sometimes bigger. And yet what happens is when those earthquakes take place, mountains are formed and islands and reefs and valleys. And yet uh, as this takes place, everything's being shaken. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Colossians 1 16 <clears throat> says of Jesus, by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So when Jesus holds all things together, all things are held together by his power. When he decides to let go, this is what it will look like. Creation as we know it will begin to unwind, if you will. It will begin to fall apart. And so, um, as this takes place, again, the parallel passage is Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. As this takes place, and all these things are happening, there will be people on the earth that, for the first time in their life, start to contemplate eternity. Because you don't contemplate eternity many times unless what's going on right now, the temporary, starts to fail. You don't start looking for a lifeboat until the ship you're on starts to sink. 
And what's interesting is as this is happening, in Revelation chapter 6, in verse uh, 15, it says this, and it's going to list out every strata of society. He says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, the slaves, free men, Every person, no matter how much money they have or don't have, every person, no matter how much authority or popularity they have or don't have, every person, whether they're able to be controlling over their lives or not, here's what they do. They hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Everyone, everyone hides from God the Father and the wrath of the Lamb. They know who's in charge of everything falling apart. Something about what's going on helps them understand that everything's unraveling because the one creator, right now everybody says everything's God, everybody's got their own way, but when this takes place, their eyes will be opened and they will cry out. Many will cry out and say, save me from this. But notice, these people, no matter how bad it gets, they recognize that it's the creator getting ready to crush everything and instead of crying out to the rock of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, they cry out to the rocks on the ground and say, crush me, hide me. They're going to hide under rocks. Now think about the organisms that live on our world right now. What hides under rocks? Snakes? Animals? Like the little scurrying, like rats? And, and centipedes? I was picking rocks the other day. I found the biggest worms worms and rocks and snakes they all hide underneath rocks and yet jesus has offered us this great salvation where we can hide under him we can be saved from the wrath to come but matthew chapter 24 verse 22 talking about this very scenario unfolding that we're reading today said unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved but for the sake of those who respond to the gospel of the glory of his grace the elect those days would be shortened. So, as we go to my last slide here, I think second to last. <clears throat> There's two relationship options with the rock, with the stone. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 17 through 18, they describe Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And Jesus said, whosoever shall fall upon the cornerstone shall be broken. But upon whomsoever that stone shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So that what he's telling the group he was talking to and what this passage is telling non-believers is instead of being ground to powder by the stones or by Jesus himself, fall upon the rock and let yourself be broken. Give up your pride. Stop trying to do things on your own. But notice Luke chapter 23, verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In the tribulation, no matter how bad it gets, there's going to be a large group of people that would sooner ask to be buried alive than to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. You think, well, why would anybody reject that offer even when it gets bad? But they will. Their hearts will be hardened. They'll be like Pharaoh who is told, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go, to the point that on the last plague, what did he say? I'll let you go. And then he said, nope, I'm not going to let you go. And, and God said, fine, we're going to kill the firstborn of every household. It's going to cost you your firstborn son. He said, okay, you can take him. And then he hardened his heart. And then on that night, the angel of death passes over. He loses his own son. And then they chase him out. 
He hardened his heart so much, and then it says that God set his, pla- his heart in place. And so people will be so against God that even when given the opportunity to repent in these seven years, they'd rather be buried alive. Now think about some of the, maybe you've, you've never probably watched soap operas, but there's been some pretty intense soap operas I remember. And there was one when I used to get babysit and uh, this guy was buried alive and they kept giving the camera angle of him being buried. And like it was this big dramatic situation and somebody knew that he was buried alive and then he ends up getting buried alive and then they finally dig him up. But I, I don't remember much about it other than the thought of being buried alive scares me to death. It's, it makes me feel... Uh, it makes me feel hemmed in right now, surrounded by nothing. It makes me feel claustrophobic. And yet, rather than bowing the knee to Jesus, they will cry out, rocks, just crush me. I'd rather be crushed than bow the knee. And so I have there for you a picture of a rock that fell on a highway. And it, there's a sign next to it, ironically, that says falling rocks. Watch out for falling rocks. And so the thought is, from Revelation everyone will be accountable, and you have been warned. Revelation 6.16, fall on us and hide us from his face. Interestingly enough, look at Genesis chapter 3. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve do when they sin against God? They cover themselves in fig leaves, and yet in the last days, in the tribulation period, they're no longer using fig leaves. They're now saying rocks cover us, Rocks crush us. So this is a cry out to the non-believer. If you don't believe in Christ, this is your opportunity. And if you wait to the tribulation, that's your own choice. But even then, God's not willing that you should perish. He wants all to be saved to the point that he unleashes this shaking, this pestilence, this famine, this death, so that people in their pain would go, Lord, save me. And if that doesn't work, they'll be crushed. But will because of their own will, not because of his. But what about Christians? What are we supposed to do? Well, I was reading this this morning with Kelly, and uh, I wanted to close with this thought. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. The writer of Hebrews writes in verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 12. I think it's fitting. We just talked about this shaking. Let's start in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Think about what we just read, heavens and earth being shaken. And then he says, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we, this is for the believer, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. I don't know about anything else that you got away from today's reading, but you should see that God consumes like a fire. His judgment is unquenchable. So how are we to live with being, let us have grace. How are we to serve God acceptably in the day and age that we live in, knowing that it's all going to be destroyed? Hebrews 13 goes on to say, let brotherly love continue. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't forget to entertain strangers. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you are yourselves are in the body of Christ also. Remember those who are persecuted. Uh, marriage is honorable, verse 4, among all in the bed undefiled. So honor your marriages. Live as married people. Live in a way that honors God with your marriage. 
Um, Verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 8, remember that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 9, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. It's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited. Um, Verse 10, remember that we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest. He's saying, make sure to remember that the sacrifice that we've been saved with is not a perishable sacrifice. It's much more precious than silver and gold. And then Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered. Remember that if you suffer as a Christian, it's for sanctification. Let us go forth. Remember that we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Verse 14. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer sacrifice. Praise God no matter what. Verse 15. Use the fruit of your lips to praise him and be thankful. Don't forget to do good and to share with one another. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Then he says, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. And then he says to them as a final word, May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're wondering how you're supposed to conduct yourselves in the days that we live in, if you're wondering Where's this all going to go? I just read to you where it's all going to go. But if you're wondering, how am I supposed to live in light of this? Recognize that the God of peace brought Jesus back from the dead. But also recognize that our great shepherd is going to make you complete if you let him in every good work. Do his will right now. Spend your time, buy it back, redeem it, and do what he has for you to do. If you don't know what that is, ask him and do it. Be a blessing. Share with one another. Remember those who are of your family, the household of God. Pray for one another. Love one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Because if you live as members of God's kingdom now, so that the kingdom, when we're gone, when the kingdom leaves, when we're pulled up to heaven, the people that are left on earth will remember the glimpses of God's kingdom that you, they saw in you. So that even if they don't believe by your testimony right now, when it's all done, they'll be able to remember back and go, wow, that person disappeared and they were always talking about Jesus. Maybe I should start living like them. Maybe I should give my life to that same king. Maybe there's still hope for me. And we can leave, leave that note for them essentially of our life. So, Father, we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Help us to live like it now. We love you, Lord. And, uh, you know, I just confess that your wrath, your strange work, is something that I don't quite understand, but I know that you use it for good purposes so that we'll see you. You discipline us as your children. But Father, for the unbelieving world, they have no discipline because they're not your children. They don't have their eyes open. They're blind to sin and shame and guilt. They experience all of it, but they don't know what to do with it. Help us to be about your business. Help us to share the gospel with them. Help us to share our living hope with our neighbors until we depart. And then may our testimony echo in their ears. May the message of hope May the message of salvation ring as we leave. But Father, in the meantime, help us to be faithful in the life that you've given us. Help us to share, to serve, to be like Jesus was. 
and is. And we just promise, we, we love you, Lord, and we give you the glory. We ask, Lord, that you would, who began a faithful work in us, would be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus' return. So, Lord, thank you for this group. Thank you for the opportunity to do this uh, through the internets. Lord, please uh, hear our prayers and hear our praises. Help us to be a thankful people in the time that we live in. And, oh, Lord, please bring us back together. No doubt we can have church in the deer woods. We can have church in our living rooms and our pajama pants. But I look forward to us being together again so that we can just share of your goodness and recount the stories and hear each other's voices and be built up and encouraged in that way. So, Lord, until then, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.